Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Well, good morning, Jacobswell. Um, It is really nice to be here with you. For those of you who have been a part of the church for a while, um, I know that you are, or even for the people that are new, are celebrating this 10-year anniversary coming up. And for our family, we have been, uh, this is also the 10-year anniversary for us that we have been sent out by this church for a gospel ministry, first for four years in Spain and now uh, five years in London. So we're just thankful. Uh, I, I oftentimes have, uh, get a little bit nervous when I'm around new people. And uh, there's, I don't know if it's the Midwest charm or what it is, but you guys have been so kind to me and my family. Unfortunately, they're not here with me, uh, but my three children, a 10-year-old boy, an 8-year-old girl, and a 5-year-old boy, who I think that there's an insert with our family on there. So uh, there's a story about uh, John and Charles Wesley, who were sort of famous evangelists and hymn writers. And I think they were one of maybe 13 or 17, or it was definitely in the teens. And um, their mother, when, the, when there was just too much children going on, she would take her apron and she would put it over her head and get on her knees in the kitchen and pray. And the rule was, when the apron was over mom, you don't get to talk to her. But she had this anchor in her faith that led her to this moment. And I don't know what your week has been like this week, but maybe you have longed for something like that as well, an anchor to steady you, to stay you when life is hard, because there's so much worry and there's so much hurry in our lives. But Jesus is offering us a life of unworried and unhurried. You ever longed for a life like that? that's centered on an anchor that's heavier than you. If you've ever longed for that, we're in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. Hebrews 6, verses 13 through 20. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham Abraham having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, 
we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Oh, Spirit, won't you come again and visit us? Won't you come again and encourage us? Won't you come again and bring new life to us? For a lot of us, faith is feeling quite stale or old or used. And we long for other lovers. We long for other things that are not you. So draw us to you, we pray. With all of your power and all of your goodness, help us to come under the righteous and lovely reign of God. Remind us of the tune of the good news of the gospel, we pray. Pray in the name of Christ. Amen. So one of the great things about having to stay with Pastor Dan in his house right now is I get to know Charlie. Charlie is their seven-month-year-old Springer Spaniel, and he is a lot like my dog, who is a half-poodle, half-cocker Spaniel. Because whenever you see our dog, he'll just start to kind of, he'll just start to wiggle. And my office is in my home, and so for most of the day, he's just waiting on the children because I'm just doing boring things. But... If there is a slight noise, he'll jump up and he'll just start wiggling because he's so excited about the promise of my oldest son, whose name is King. My oldest son's going to be home, and so he'll, he'll get up, but it's just the mailman. Or he'll get up, and he's always on the ready. He's ready to leave me whenever because my son, and so he's patiently waiting, he's patiently waiting, and then, and then my son actually does come. And if you could just sort of see his nose, is, he's, everything's shaking, everything's shaking, everything's shaking, everything's shaking. His nose is right up on the door, right up on the door. And in England, they have to all wear uniforms. And so my son, the deal is you can't see Clyde, which is our dog's name, first. You have to go up and change out of your uniform and come back down. And so with every step, you know, the dog is just, and he's starting to howl because he's so excited. He's so excited. And then eventually my son does come in and they fall on the ground and it's this amazing <laughs> moment for both of them. You see, in some ways, you learn a lot from dogs because the promise, the promise of my son coming home is a lot like our promises that we receive from God. We can, wait with, we can wait for them in patience and hopeful expectation because we know when they come, oh, it's going to be so good. Oh, it's going to be so good. Oh, it's going to be so good when he comes. And so we wait. We wait with hope. Oh, we know it's going to be so good. We know it's going to be so good. But for some of us, maybe for all of us, one of the reasons why we don't wag our tails Waiting on God is because we have been betrayed. We've been let down. We've been hurt by the people that we were supposed to trust. And so we step back 
and we hold back because we have been so bruised. Maybe your husband left you, or maybe your son doesn't follow Jesus anymore. Or maybe your boss takes credit for your work that you worked so hard that you knew that once this got recognition, you would finally get that promotion. What was it for you that made us stop hoping and trusting in the promises of God? Because in the scriptures, we see about this loving God condescending, coming down to us and hugging us tight and promising us this unending river of blessing and love that is You are in the crosshairs. For those of us who have embraced Christ as our own, been united with faith, or united with Christ in our faith, he he gives you complete assurance that he will bless you. That we receive these same promises from Abraham. That in faith, we are a part of this community of faith that God loves and he dotes on. And that anything that should ever befall you, any, any struggle or difficulty, we know that it is not a repayment for our wrong. But in and of itself, good. Because it comes from the hand of God. Because through faith in Jesus, promised blessings from God will come, we must wait patiently with hearts full of hope. We must wait patiently with hearts full of hope. In this scripture, we're gonna look at three different points. Number one, God's promised blessings are certain. Number two, God's promised blessings are an encouraging refuge. And number three, God's promised blessings. God's promises to fill us with hopeful assurance. Number one, God's promised blessings are certain. Read with me again in 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having having patiently waited, obtained the promise. You see, in our culture, when we make promises to people, they are oftentimes tied to money, right? And so in some way, we've relegated the idea of trust to contractual agreements, So I bought a dryer last week and then it didn't work, but I wasn't nervous because I bought a two-year guarantee with it. So the way that we trust something is that we buy that trust. We buy that trust. Or for those of you who are football fans, the reason why the New England Patriots are very worried right now, why? Because Brady is out of contract. Because the thing that we trust the most is a contractual agreement that includes money. So we get AAA, or we get car insurance, or we get health insurance. We try and surround ourselves with the security that comes from what we can buy. But one of the struggles about our culture is that we we are beginning to, and have begun, to lose faith in our institutions. So we don't really trust government anymore. We don't really trust family anymore. We don't really trust sometimes even the church anymore. And so when we buy this commodity of trust, sometimes even even when we have it, it's hard to really rely on it. You see, in the ancient Near East, 
maybe they were a little more sophisticated than us, a little more advanced than us. Because in the ancient Near East, when you wanted to make a pact with somebody, let's say Pastor Dan and I, we were, we were chatting about six months or a year ago that I was going to be here this week. And in the ancient Near East, what we would do is I would fly into Green Bay, and we'd take some bulls, and we would cut them right in half. Put the head on one side, put the tail on one side. And get a goat, cut it right in half. Put the head on one side, put the tail on one side. Get some birds, kill the birds. And then we would go arm in arm and walk through the blood and the entrails coming in the middle. And as we walked forward, we would say, if I break this commandment, if I break this covenant, may, may it be done to me what was done to the bulls. I'll tell you what, I'd show up for that conference. I'd show up for the conference because I knew that, oh, they're going to come find me, and I know what they did to the bulls. And so when God comes to Abraham in Genesis 12, and he promises to be a blessing to him, so that he would be like a conduit to bless the world. I bless you so that you would bless other people. And if anyone even disrespects you, I'm going to curse you. And so in Genesis 15, when this 75-year-old man is a few years older, and he's still waiting on this son, because he promised that he would have a son, and that he would have so many children and offspring, they'd be like the sand in the, sea, in the seashore. This amazing, huge nation would come to this very old man and woman, And Abraham was waiting. Maybe you guys are waiting as well. And maybe you've grown a bit weary like Abraham did in Genesis 15 when he laughed at God. Or in Genesis 17 when Abraham's wife, Sarah, she laughed at him as well. And so what does God do? He's, going, he's coming into the ancient Near East and saying, I'm going to put my dump truck of blessings and I'm going to put them all on you, Abraham. So what does he do? He cuts the bulls. He cuts the goats. He cuts the birds. And right before Abraham and God go arm in arm, God puts Abraham to sleep. He goes into a deep sleep, it says in Genesis 15. And who goes through the parts? Only God in a smoldering pot and a flaming torch. He alone walks through the parts. And the significance of this is if he breaks the covenant, then he's the only one that pays. If Abraham, sleepy Abraham breaks the covenant, he's the only one that pays. And we can, we, for those of us who have embraced Jesus, we can start to hear the little, the tune in the back of our mind of the good news of Jesus. Because Abraham and Abraham's descendants and those who have followed God, they broke the covenant and God had to pay. Isn't that good news? Don't you want to be friends with people who always take the blame for you? This is what it's like to be a friend of God. You get all the good, and he gets all the blame. You get all the promises. You get all the certainty of promises, and he gets all the blame. In Genesis 22, Finally, at 100 years old, Abraham has baby Isaac. Isaac means laughter because they laughed about getting him. And God says to Abraham, all right, going up to that mountain, 
And you take out a knife and you sacrifice your son for me. So sure enough, Abraham goes up, up to the mountain, and he raises the knife up. And right as he raised the knife up, what does God say? Okay, okay, that's enough. That's enough. I know that you loved me so much that you are willing to give up your only son for me. In Hebrews 11, it says, he didn't hesitate because he believed that God could raise his son from the dead. In Romans 4, Paul says, he believed, he had faith in God and God credited to him his righteousness. But for us, for, for those of us who have embraced Jesus, we know that, the, that the, the knife went up against Jesus and it wasn't called off. That he did not spare his own son. He didn't spare his own son so that he could have us, Gentiles, the ones that are outside of the kingdom of God, so that, so that we could pour in. Do you want to know the certainty of God's promises? He gave you his only son. His only son. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible is from the book of Matthew, verses 19, 29. It says, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Can't you hear a little bit of that promise of Abraham? Believe on me. Believe on my promises and I will reward you. In Hebrews it says, you must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who seek him. In our context, it's fun to be around a lot of people from a non-Western background coming to faith. And uh, the, about the family I, I told you about, um, one of the, the husband who came to faith, he was hearing about these promises of God and the certainty of the promises of God. And he was sort of doing the math because all of everyone in his family are Hindu. And it's so funny because they come to our church potlucks that have to be vegetarian all the time and they're always a part like we have so many people that come to our stick indian stick dance nights which are really really popular in our world uh can you start hearing about no no this promise is for you and for your children this is an amazing thing about god is that he says i'm gonna bless you and your children after you for a thousand generations your sins, they only last for four generations, but the blessings for a thousand. And so as he was absorbing this, he said, he said, so that means that I have a new bloodline. I just thought that was such a, such a great way to talk about the promises of God, that they follow you around so much that they even follow into your children. Now, for, all, for many of us, for us to embrace Jesus and for us to consistently follow him in our lives, it will look a little bit like Abraham agreeing to sacrifice his son. It will look like your faith is sabotaging what you love the most. You see, the cert, we need the certainty of faith in order to make moves in our life that feel counterintuitive to everyone around us. If you waited 25 years, I haven't waited 25 years for almost anything, but if you waited 25 years and you only got one son, what would your natural tendency to be? Protect that son. 
Dote on that son. Don't let that son go out because you finally have him. So maybe my question for you is, if you really had the certainty of the promises of God in your life, what are the risks that you would take that other people would say you're sabotaging your own life? Maybe it's in business. Maybe it's with parenting. How can we live lives of risk that we risk being patient when the whole world is in a hurry? That we risk being hopeful when the whole world is cynical? What can we, how can we absorb this faith that the belief of certainty has some sort of correlation with our ability to hope and to wait? For Abraham, it was waiting for a long, long time and being willing to giving away that which was most sacred to him. But not only are these things certain, but if you think about them in comparison with other religions, so I'm around people from other religions all the time, and if you want to really disturb many people from a Muslim background, ask them about death. Because they may be very forceful about the glories of Islam, but one of the, in my opinion, one of the sorrows of Islam is that you have no certainty in death. Because you're always so worried, have I done enough for God to accept me? Have I finally done enough? I was having tea with a guy, and when I brought, when I brought up death, it's like I, the, all the air got sucked out of the room. He said, I'm very very afraid of death. And Hinduism is uh, oftentimes uses the, the idea of karma. So in the West, we'll use it sometimes, like, oh, the guy's that's bad karma. And we sort of talk about it flippantly. But listen, karma is a very, very dark doctrine. Karma means that there is no injustice in all of the world. Everybody gets exactly what they deserve. So when a baby dies, that baby deserved to die. When your friend got cancer, they deserve to get cancer. And you need to remove yourself from people who have bad karma so that it won't get on you and your friends and family. The certainty that they have is that whatever they receive, they deserve. But maybe secularism is the darkest of all. Because under the regime of secularism, we have to justify ourselves. We have to come up with our own life purpose. We have to come up with our own goals. And, and we are the king to judge ourselves. And so like John Rockefeller used to say is when he was asked, how much money is enough? He said, just a little bit more. Because we never, we never can do enough we never can do enough to justify to ourselves that we are worthy of the life that we've been given. And so we work way too long because we're justifying this purpose. We're justifying. We worry and we never say no to anybody because we're trying to justify our lives. We're trying to justify our lives. We're trying to justify our lives. And then we hear the good news of the gospel when Jesus says, you are mine. He names us a name so much greater than we are 
Every other religion says, be this person and work your way up the mountain. In Jesus, we see a God coming down the mountain to come and rescue us and take us up with him. The luxury of certainty is that we can sleep easy at night. We can disappoint all of our friends. You see, he takes the weight and he gives it to you so that in this world we can have an anchored life. Um, Point two, because God's promises are an encouraging refuge, we must patiently wait with hearts full of hope. We must patiently wait with hearts full of hope. Read with me verse 16. Uh, Verse 16, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Oh, I'm in the wrong I'm in the wrong chapter, excuse me. Uh, For people swear by something greater than themselves, and all their disputes and oath is final for confirmation. So this is getting back to the ancient Near East, right? So they're talking about oaths. Now, God didn't have to give Abraham an oath, but he did. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So basically he's saying two things. It took me a while as I was, as I was reading through this to see the, the two different things. The first thing is the, the, the purpose in his heart to bless you, right? So he has a plan in his heart. I'm going to bless you. And then he takes an oath. I mean, who, who needs an oath on top of, of his intention? But he does. And he binds them together by the idea that he is unable to lie. I mean, just think about that for just a second. God is unable to lie. Everything he says is true all the time. So really, there's three things that he's bound by. He's bound by his purpose, he's bound by his oath, and then he's bound by his character. He can't not come through for you. He can't not come through for you. Is this ringing in your ears when you wake up in the morning? When you look in the mirror and your hair is all this way and you're just, you know, your eyes and you think to yourself, okay, here we go. When you look in the mirror, do you think to yourself, I wonder what God's got for me today. I'm in his crosshairs. I'm ready to enjoy and experience the encouragement of his blessings. I know they're coming. Is that how we live our lives? Do we, do, we, do we start shaking like Charlie? Do we start shaking like dogs? We're like, okay, God, I'm ready. I'm ready. Because it's so certain that it's going to happen, we can enjoy the encouragement and the fact that it's a refuge for us, a real refuge for us. So when we sit down, when we sit down at our place of work and we sit down in our school or we sit down in other places, are we, just, are we just moving, waiting for him? Well, I know he's promised me. And I know it's not here yet, but I know it's coming. I know it's coming. George Mueller, who was a famous uh, British, um, was in charge of orphanages where hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of people came through. And uh, he never raised a dime in terms of support. He would just wait on God to show up for him. And one time he had hundreds of orphans and none of them had eaten. And so they all prayed. And while they were praying, a bread truck 
and a milk truck got in an accident right in front of the orphanage. And it was such a bad accident that they just had to give away all the stuff to the orphans. Is that what your life is like? There's a 200 orphans, or 100, I don't know how many hundred orphans, are, and you're just shaking. You're just shaking. You're ready for it. I remember when I was, I went to seminary with Dan, Pastor Dan. And I remember I was in a, a class. I, I didn't really know if I wanted to be a Christian anymore, and so I decided to go to seminary, um, <clears throat> which is a normal thing to do, right? I remember I had a campus pastor, and he came to me and he said, Stephen, when you were talking to the admissions guy, did you tell him that you weren't sure if you were a Christian anymore? And I was like, yeah, man, I was so stressed. That conversation was super heavy. I was telling him all about my doubts. And it's like, you know, you don't have to share everything, right? Like, you can leave some of that out. And I was like, I just want, I want to make sure they know what they're getting into with me. And so my apartment had just burned down when I was in university or in college. I have to switch my, my vernacular here. When I was in college and I had a check for $7,500 and I thought, you know what, I'm going to give seminary a year. If I'm, at the, if I'm a Christian at the end of this, then I'll stick with it. And so I was around very professional people like your pastor, Dan, and, uh, <clears throat> and a lot of people that had these wives and these children, and they knew what they were going to do with their life, and I was just stumbling in, man. And I remember they were talking about this very technical, technically theological issue. And I remember being so bored, and... Um, and, and there was a few people there asking questions, and the, and, the, and the professor said, you know what, we've kind of talked about this for a while. If anybody wants to talk more about this, then uh, raise your hand. And I was on one of the front rows, and there's maybe 100 or 200 people in the, in the classroom. And I, st- I, I started laughing out loud because I thought, who would want to waste their lunch on this? Definitely not me. I feel bad for this professor. And then I remember turning around to see, I mean, there might be one guy raising his hand. I remember turning around and like 80 people raised their hand. I thought, where am I? What am I doing with my life? And I just remember feeling so out of place and ashamed about who I was. And, oh, I just, I don't even know if I want to keep going. And I remember just finding a library I was so stressed and I just felt so much anxiety and I just was not certain about the future at all and I, just, I, wanted, a, I wanted a study room that had a door so I could just lay on the ground for a little bit. And if you ever laid on the ground with really cheap carpet, you know what that feeling is? Like just really, it's cold and it's terrible. And I just remember being so overwhelmed by just the, the, the realities of life and I remember saying to myself, Stephen, God loves you. He has good things in store for you. And he's never going to betray you. Stephen, God loves you. He has good things in store for you. And he's never going to leave you. And I just remember repeating myself over and over and over again, probably five or ten minutes, just on, in the library, in the seminary, where everyone else is doing important things. And I'm just on the floor. And I remember after five or ten minutes, after sort of repeating this little mantra, I, thought to, I stood up and I thought, this works. I felt so much better. I felt so hopeful. I thought, my life, my life is attached to a real hope. God is never going to betray me. He really does love me. It became this refuge of encouragement. that I just, I just repeated something that I had heard <laughs> over and over. And I thought, this works. Other people should know about this. It's good news. He gets all the wrong, and you get all the good. 
He gets all the sin. He gets all the punishment. He gets all the garbage. And you have this luxurious life of certainty and encouragement. Don't you want a life like that? Wait for him. Hope in him. Not only is it a certain hope, and not only is it an encouraging hope, but also, and I'm not going to lie, this is sort of my favorite part. God's promises fill us with a hopeful insurance. They fill us with a hopeful assurance. Verse 19 says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You know, I had this, I was really stressed out about a number of things, and I had another moment this last week when I just read this part over and over again, and it felt almost like a supernatural hope came over me. There's a, uh, an English band that I'd, I'm not sure if they're actually popular here, Bastille is the name, and they've had a few hits uh, in, in Britain, and one of them is called Those Nights. And the chorus is, Aren't we all just looking for a little bit of hope these days, looking for somebody you can wake up with? We are, we are. Because the rub about secularism is it tells us that all authority and all the expectations of others are one of our biggest problems in life. So you have to throw off the expectations of others and throw off authority and then become your true self. The difficulty about throwing off all the expectations of others is that most people don't want to spend a lot of time with someone who has thrown off all of their expectations. So if my wife asks me, hey, will you take out the trash? And I say, you know what, I'm going to throw off your expectations on me. That's not going to go terribly well. Because what our culture convinces us is that we have, as Charles Taylor, the philosopher put it, we have this golden nugget nugget deep into our chest and we have to find it and consult it and the best way we can consult it is through our own personal emotions. The difficulty about that is it's hard to find somebody to wake up with as Bastille says because we begin to just use other people more and more. You see, I'm just looking for a little bit of hope these days. I'm looking for somebody I can wake up with, aren't you? Well, the good news of this passage is that Jesus, Jesus becomes this assurance of hope. He said he had, there's three images here. The first image is a forerunner, that he has run ahead of us into heaven, that he is preparing a place for us, that there will be one day when there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And so he's run ahead of us. And while he has run ahead of us up there, he has now become a high priest. So I remember a long time ago, somebody put it succinctly, prophets bring God to the people and priests bring people to God. So he's interceding for us. He's with the Father and he never sleeps. He never lies and he never sleeps. And he's constantly interceding for us over and over and over again. And then it says that we have in him an anchor. And I was listening to this sermon about this text, and it was so great, the way he said it. He said, you know, normally you drop an anchor. He said, but this is the anchor that you sort of go like this, and you throw it up into heaven. 
So when you sit down, there's an anchor holding you. In Psalm 46, it says, Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, if everything around you totally crumbles, you can be still and know that he is God because you are on his anchor. He's gone ahead of us. He's a forerunner. He's interceding for us. And he's, he's attached himself to us. Now, there's not a really great argument for him to do that because of all the problems that we bring in the relationship, but he loves us. He's like, yeah, yeah, the wandering one, the one who gets tired of me, the one who wanders away from me, I'm gonna choose you. This is what our God is like. So we can have hope, real hope, that if he's gone ahead of us, if he's for us up there, and if he is Anchor, if we are anchored in some way with, with, with ourselves, we can just sort of swing around. We can enjoy the ride. When I was uh, assessed, I had to go through a bunch of psychological testing to become a missionary to, to know what they're getting themselves into. And uh, I remember all my psychological tests came back and they said, well, Stephen, it turns out you are a very high tis, uh, risk taker and you are very impulsive. They said, that is a very dangerous combination, and we're worried that you, you yourself could take down an entire team. And I thought to myself, so am I in? <laughs> so is this bad news or good news? Well, one of, that, one of the ways that worked out is um, uh, I went to Clemson University in South Carolina. I'm originally from South Carolina. And um, there's a big lake right beside there, and I don't know how someone put this rope swing up there, but it was... It's basically 30 feet, almost, I mean, the angle is, it's, you know, it's almost just straight. So you have to kind of claw your way up this mud. But if you get all the way to the top, there's a rope swing. And so like 30 of us would go. You have to swim across uh, to this little island, and they, ha and they had this rope swing. And, you, and it was so fun because it's about, you know, three seconds of utter terror. You're holding onto this rope, and you're basically headed right towards the lake. And you're holding on so tight because you know that the promise is it's going to fling you out 30 feet as well. And so you just hold on. You hold on so tight. You hold on so tight. People are doing double backflips. And people were, oh, it was just the most delightful, joyful time you could, you could even imagine. But you better hold on to that rope. Because that rope is a part of how you get to the top. See, for, for us who are followers of Jesus, we are oftentimes moving into dark, moving away from safety, moving into pain, moving into sorrow, and the world looks on and says, don't do that. Protect yourself. But we do it, right? Because we know that even though everything is looking towards it looks like we're going to die. We know that holding on to Jesus, holding on to his promises, leads us into life and joy and hope in the future. He is your forerunner. He is your anchor. He is your high priest, the one who is for you. Hold on to him as he holds on to you. So my question for you is, if you have this promise that is certain, that is an encouraging refuge and fills you with hopeful assurance. How are you going to spend it? If I gave you two or three hope chips today, how would you spend those down? How would you go into something that is completely hopeless? 
and spend a promise on it? How could your faith reorient you this week to be patient as you await the blessing of God, full of hope? There is an old pastor by the name of Polycarp who was a pastor in Smyrna, which is, uh, which is now modern-day Turkey. And he's around in the first century, 69 to 155 A.D. And he was a pastor. He was 86 years old. He was an old man, and he'd had a number of parishioners begin to get, be persecuted. And so they tried to start hiding him in farms. So when they got word that Polycarp was in one, they'd move him to the next one, and they'd move him to the next one, and move him to the next one. And uh, eventually, after someone was tortured... Uh, came out where he was. And so Caesar got somebody to go get him. And Caesar was kind to him because he was an 86-year-old man. And he said, you know what, just take the oath and I'll let you go. I know you are a pastor, but I'll just let you go. You're so old. Revile Christ, deny him. And without hesitation, Polycarp replied, these 86 years I have been his servant and he has never wronged me. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? He was then bound and burned alive. The certainty of God's promise. The only logical reason that you would ever do that is if right on the other side of death is blessing. Right on the other side of sorrow is good. And that like our Lord Jesus himself, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. How is that even possible? If hope, patiently waiting, let's embrace these promises from him. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus loved you so much and he was empowered by these same promises that if even in death we have goodness waiting for us, how much more fun can our life be if the biggest questions in the world are answered and are all yes in the Lord Jesus, if even in death we are free, we can live lives of patiently waiting and full of hope, knowing that Jesus has gone before us and he will come back for us. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks that you love us and that you've come for us. Give us that hopeful expectation, that longing to wait for you more than anyone else because we know that with you we have pleasures forevermore. Remind us, remake us, help us to believe. In the name of Christ, amen.